Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. The world and technology are moving at a faster pace than ever, with mixed reality headsets and ChatGPT and countless other innovations all introduced within the last year. So today we're delving into a topic that's on everybody's mind these days, artificial intelligence or AI. More specifically, we're looking at how AI is being harnessed for good, especially in tackling major health challenges. AI's impact on our health and well-being may be profound and will offer innovative solutions to complex problems in healthcare. So in this episode, we're exploring two critical areas of AI where it's making a significant difference, diabetes and cancer. Joining us today are two respected researchers in their field who are at the cutting edge of this technological revolution. First, we have Dr. Mishari El-Washmi from Amplify AI, who's utilizing AI in groundbreaking ways to address diabetic foot complications, a common and really severe issue that affects millions of people worldwide. Next, we'll have Dr. Daniel Boyar, an associate senior lecturer at the University of Gothenburg, Sweden. He's here to discuss his work on AI and his role in cancer research, focusing on early detection and personalized medicine. Together, we'll explore how these innovative technologies are shaping the future of healthcare. We'll discuss potential implications for patients and medical practitioners and uncover the promise AI holds for tackling these challenging health issues. Let's get to our conversation on how AI may pave the way for healthier communities. Hi, Dr. Alwashby. Welcome to the show. Or should I call you Mishari since I have known you for over a decade? Well, I'll also uh, call you Mike, Dr. Wall. Good to see you. So happy to be there and thank you for having me. Oh, this is a great, great conversation. Number one, you know more about how AI is going to be impacting the health sector than anybody I know. And this has been something that's been around for over a year and a half almost for the general population. I know that AI has been around longer than that, but for people that can access it, it's been around. Um, maybe you could give us a bit of a background on your path in medicine and how you sort of led you to this point. Absolutely. So as you mentioned, AI has existed actually for decades. It existed for a very long time, but over the past year with ChatGPT, we started to hear more about AI and how we use AI. All these algorithms became more accessible and actionable. People can use it for many things and uh, you can see them writing emails or asking questions and leveraging all that power to, to answer what they want to answer. So we're seeing most of it, whether it's in just day-to-day -day activities or healthcare and, uh, and many other industries. Mm. And I mean, you've been coming through the same academic route as me. We actually studied under the same professor for our PhDs. How do you sort of incorporate that into ClinEpi? And maybe you could tell me a little bit about like your educational route. Absolutely. So with the, with the clinical epidemiology, we learned statistics and biostatistics. We took many courses in, in that. And essentially, AI is fancy statistics. So how do we ask the right research question or the right question, bring the right data, apply the statistical techniques to answer that research question? So that's how I look at AI as well. If we have a problem that we want to tackle, how can we get the right data and the right AI algorithms to be able to answer it? With all the advancements and as I mentioned, generative AI and other AI algorithms, we're able to answer many sophisticated question very, very quickly. Mm. Okay. And so you came from this statistics background, you were involved in the health tech sector. Tell me about the company that you started now that's sort of adopting this technology. 
So we created Amplify Health. So um, unfortunately, during COVID, we had to rely uh, a lot on technology, which is a blessing that we had that technology to be able to do and conduct a lot of medical visits. But we're still using archaic tools. We're using the same tools we're using right now to communicate the cameras and the microphones to diagnose a lot of diseases. But we thought of how can we go beyond that? How can we bring in new cameras and new lenses to amplify the senses of clinicians be able to see more throughout the screens and throughout the digital technologies to be able to um, understand patients better. And as we started to dig deeper, we came across thermal cameras and hyperspectral cameras and started to think of use cases. So what we're doing now, we're leveraging thermal cameras as well as AI or computer vision to be able to see things the human eye can't see. The first condition we're tackling is diabetic foot complications. Yeah, and I think about that for anybody who's trying to get reference to this, it's almost like if you've seen the movie Predator back in the day where he can sense the heat of the bodies going through and see things. And and maybe you could explain why that's relevant for diabetes and how blood flow causes warmth and you know how that's modified as, as part of their condition and why this camera would be so helpful. Absolutely. A lot of patients with diabetes, unfortunately, have vascular issues and that affects how fast the blood goes to their limbs, their arms and their their legs. So that changes in the, the vasculature, that changes in how fast the blood go back and forth, creates a heat signature. And we were able to capture that with the, the thermal cameras and analyze it with the AI. Unfortunately, there's not many people can read the data that comes from thermal images. These people are called thermologists, kind of like radiologists. Radiologists read MRI and X-rays while thermologists read thermal images, but there's not a lot of them. And that's where AI came in. We're able to leverage AI to essentially learn what these thermologists are doing and learn how can they read these images and that's how we trained our models to be able to learn from these thermographers and how to interpret these images. That's incredible. So if somebody is, for example, suffering from some complications with diabetes, I'm sure that people are aware that somebody they know has a diabetes and they could have complications with their skin and have sores or even amputations that lead to it because there's a change in blood flow. You're able to see this through the cameras. And only certain people are able to accurately diagnose. So you can actually use this technology to be able to do that. Why is that so important for patients when it comes to treating their symptoms? Um, unfortunately, every 20 seconds around the world, someone loses their foot. And it's the majority is related to diabetic complications. Every single guideline around the world for diabetes, they recommend that we need to test patients' foot at least once a year. We're not doing that. There's not many foot specialists that can that can read it. I know in in um, in the Ministry of Health in Saudi Arabia, for example, there is about six podiatrists for the whole diabetic population, which is a low number. I'm not sure how many are there in Newfoundland, but it's it's very small. So how can we at least help screen as many patients as possible so we can bring in the the high risk patients closer to these podiatrists to treat them sooner before things get worse? Because now we're only intervening when clinicians can see that there is a foot cut or a foot ulcer, which could progress very quickly and it's very costly. Simply a third of diabetes costs are related to these diabetic foot complications. Wow. Okay. So by the time our physicians are able to recognize these signs and symptoms, they're already at a point where they're causing damage and challenges for individuals. How early can your technology detect it? And then what does that mean for the prognosis for the patient? How can that put these adverse outcomes off in the future? 
we can uh, to the earliest stages we were able to see these differences these heat signatures in between patients and we have clinical trials that will be coming out to show the the positive results we're very happy with what you've been able to achieve but you can see it early on and what that helps it allows the patients to start paying more attention to their foot allows clinicians to monitor it closely allows them to see what can be changed it's a range of of, of actionable things that they can do from changing their footwear to seeing a vascular surgeon to do a revascularization surgery to bring the blood flow back to prevent that amputation. So there is a lot of things that can be done. Oh, that's excellent. And and so the other question, I guess, would be, what about the volume? What percentage of people will be able to avail of this that wouldn't have access to it normally because they can't access one of these physicians? So as we're building the technology, hopefully we'll be able to bring it to a mass number of people. Essentially, um, we're thinking about it from a public health epidemiological perspective. We go in and we look at patients with diabetes, screen every single one of them. Once we find the ones that have complications, we bring them to the next level of care. To move essentially from a, a reactive model of care to a proactive model of care and treat them sooner. We're even thinking to go beyond actually diabetes. We're thinking to go to longevity and aging care. So individuals who are 65 years or older will start to monitor them and do these foot checkups yearly so we can make sure that they don't have vascular issues. Yeah. If we're looking at some of these conditions that your camera and your technology could work with, what percentage of the population is going to be facing some aspect of vascular decline or diabetes around the world, really? Because it's global health issues now. It's about 15 to 25% of the population have diabetes. Unfortunately, there is a lot of these delicious foods and sugary foods that are coming out that are giving us more type 2 diabetes. Uh, we need to pay more attention to it to be able to prevent those things before they happen. And that's the beauty of AI. They allow us to amplify our senses so we can reach a large segment of the population to intervene and help them better. I've been watching your progress. Again, we went to school together and you since left and now travel around. You're working out of Saudi Arabia. Your health technology is is based out of there, but you're speaking internationally now about the health technology sector. One of the things that I see you speak about a lot is AI. How do you think AI is going to transform the health industry global? What are some of the things that are going to be like become standard practice that we don't think of as, as and that aren't currently available, but will before long just be an expected or a normal thing? Um, there is there is many things that can happen. So one of what we're doing is early diagnostics. Um, other examples that we're seeing with early diagnostics is transforming the stethoscope. The stethoscope now is AI powered, so we can bring the ears of the top cardiologists in the world to any hospital. Other than that, care plans. So after we do the early diagnosis, the care plan comes in. We go into the patients and say, okay, based on your previous history, we believe that this this care plan would be suitable for you. This is how much you should exercise, how much you should eat, and monitor the drugs and how they work for you. So all of that, essentially, AI is great in analyzing ra- large amount of data to able to give us a, a predictive sense of what will work and also a prescriptive sense of what what you should do next to to have a better life. So early diagnostics, creating the care plans, remote patient monitoring. All of these are different things where AI can help. I heard a thing recently that was interesting. It said AI is going to take people's jobs. It's going to take people's jobs that are not using AI. So I think about a physician. There's an art to being a physician. There's the personal interactions. There's knowing the patient and their history. How will technologies like this 
and being able to analyze huge amounts of data that if we were going to run our old stats programs on would be almost impossible to do. How can that benefit the patient and help the doctor be a better doctor? So we always like to look at it as instead of comparing uh, AI versus doctor to doctor with AI versus doctor without AI. And they're definitely more efficient. I believe we came to this argument as well when calculators first created. A lot of them said, oh, mathematicians that use calculators are, or calculators are going to replace mathematicians. We still have mathematicians that they created AI now, which took it to the next level. So that's, that's, that's how it's going to be. And I'm sure you've seen also all of these new Apple headsets. I feel like they will be continually used more and more in medicine instead of going and looking at the screen to look at different different reports about the patient everything is integrated and fitting seamlessly on your workflow i think there is a lot of options there is a lot of tools a lot of softwares that are out there but before we take it it's important to take a step back and think of the usability of this technology yeah. and if it's not usable regardless of its impact if nobody's going to use it, there is no point. So we need to think of these solutions and how they would fit in with the existing workflow. If we solve this challenge, then we can go in and look at, okay, we're able to make it fit seamlessly. Now, will that improve the health outcomes or we have the quadruple aim in, in um, digital health? So health outcomes, healthcare costs, the experience for the clinician and the experience for the patient. If the technology is good, it's going to have a positive impact on usually most of these four outcomes. Uh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And I guess with that is that individuals sometimes can be a little bit hesitant about technology and big companies running technology, owning data, there's IP rules, but there's also data privacy. What are some of the risks and ethical challenges that we're going to have to think about as we start to integrate this technology that's made for productivity and analyzing all this data with our sensitive health information? Is there any risk there? So, um, I believe we need to find a balance of, okay, sometimes you need that information to be able to learn about the human body, learn about yourself, to be able to benefit from it, to to unlock the, the advantages of using the technology. If we're too strict with patient data, we won't be able to leverage those things. So there is always a balance between both. And that's where we want to come in and double down on security. So if we take this information, we need to make sure that built very strict rigorous guidelines inside the company and, and around the human data to make sure that it's not shared or used for reasons other than what it was collected for. Yeah. I guess that's the same with any of our health data that's out there right now. It just seems a little bit more daunting when it's the unknown for a lot of people when it comes to AI. I know I'm really interested in AI and I look at it from an education standpoint, but obviously with health, there's always different challenges that come with that. If you were to think about how AI may impact our health as a species going forward. How do you think this is going to impact? You mentioned longevity. Do you think that being able to have more information about our health is going to extend our life? Definitely. I was in a longevity conference last week, so that we there was a lot of conversations about this. So it's it's the fact of being proactive and catching things early will definitely help us to prevent it. Just like your car, when you get the check engine light early, you'll go and fix the problem before it breaks down. So if we're able to catch these problems early, we'll be able to do it. So starting from a public health management perspective, looking at all the population data from a wide lens, 
and continuing to zoom into the patient level. And when we find diseases, we go in and provide them with digital therapeutics. All of that will help us make sure that the human live longer and have not only uh, a longer life, but a healthier and happier life. Yeah, it's not just quantity of life sometimes, it's quality of life and morbidity versus mortality. And I think that's important. I want to live a long time, but I also want to feel good while I'm doing it. And when I think about how fields have worked in the past, you have engineering, you have computer science, you have medicine, and they're all seen as very separate disciplines. And now it's not so much the case. How are the engineers and the computer scientists and the mathematicians, like you said, working hand in hand with these technologies that are developed? That's a great question. Yes, we usually tend to stick to our own islands, whether it's the healthcare island or the engineer's island. Or, but when when you start traveling between those islands, that's when magic happens. We have a lot of the same things. They call it different terms, and then that just opens your mind to see a lot. And that's when you um, just, for example, the Genesis Center in Newfoundland, we have places like the garage here where you bring in engineers and technicians with healthcare professionals and, and uh, educators you bring them all in the same room. It's fascinating. We've seen hackathons across the world. That's when you see a lot of these things happen. So to, to bring them all together, they can solve anything. But we need to focus more on the problem rather than the solution. We need to find what are the problems that we want to solve. But solving it, as you mentioned, bringing those brilliant people together can solve pretty much anything. Huh. Okay, so you've been at these conferences, seeing all these different things. What's the thing that you're most excited about, besides, of course, your own technology that's going to be coming down the pipeline for general population soon? Um, the, the exciting thing is how easier it is now to maintain the privacy of the data and do federated learning. We can share large amounts of data to be able to dig in and see what causes problems. That, and we learn things that we haven't learned before. The unsupervised learning, essentially allowing the AI to go in and look at things that we've never seen before, look at associations that we've never seen before. That is uh, what's uh, excites me the most. Yeah, I agree with that too. I mean, just the, the sheer computing power behind it to be able to look at things like human genome, for example, which has been something that's been almost impossible to solve in the past just because it takes so much computing power to do that. I feel like that's going to be one of the things and that could lead to a, a lot of different changes we couldn't even think of. What do you think the biggest barrier is going to be for adopting technologies? And we can use something like your own in clinical practice for people. Usually for health care and why it takes longer, regulatory always uh, is, is the, the biggest barrier. And, and it's normal. It's typical and it should be a barrier because you don't want to introduce unsafe technologies because that could mean impacting someone's life. But having things like in Saudi Arabia, we have the, the Ministry of Health Sandbox where you can go in and bring in new innovations. We're part of it, that you can test it in a safe environment. Yeah. And also the Saudi Arabian FDA have an innovative pathway that can help fast track bringing these innovative solutions to market. So these two have been instrumental in bringing us to market closer. But yes, regulatory is the biggest barrier right now. And it's it's normal. We just have to make sure that we abide by the guidelines and do what needs to happen to make sure that patient safety comes first. Yeah, and I think the safety is a huge aspect. And I think access is another big challenge for people. It seems to be that the people that are the most challenged socioeconomically are the people that tend to have the worst health outcomes. That's because they don't have access to technology. How does the use of tech, AI, tools like yours allow individuals to be able to access the healthcare system? Is it going to be easier for them? Is it going to be more affordable for the healthcare system? What's that going to mean for the person that's most vulnerable in our community? 
So that's that's a, that's a great question. We've all heard of the digital divide. So there are tools that will be accessible and tools tools that won't be as uh, as accessible. So we need to think of that when we're introducing the technologies to make sure that they have access. And to, as you said, we we can leverage these technologies both them in rural areas so we can bring the best care to patients. But some tools are quite expensive and, and it won't be accessible to patients. So we need to think about those when we're thinking about equity and equality. Mm, that's true. Well, that's good. It's a, a growing field. It's a new field in a lot of ways. And I guess the last thing I would say is that, you know, Newfoundland and Labrador is expanding dramatically when it comes to our health tech sector. What would you encourage any innovators to think about? Or what advice would you have for people that are looking at leveraging new technology in different ways to solve problems? Um, I think they just start, just to begin. If you have an idea, don't be afraid to go in and uh, talk to everyone around you. Talk to the clinicians, the pharmacists, the physicians, the nurses. Talk to the patients because they are also a key part of the equation. That's the first thing that you do. If you speak to 10 of each, you'll be able to have a good understanding of, okay, is this a good solution? Is this a good problem to solve? So focus on finding problems other than solutions. That's what I would say. Mm. Okay. And the last thing, what advice would you have for listeners that are going to be seeing this new technology coming? And it might be a little bit scary for them to see this rapid shift and and, and the way things are done. What's your last words to kind of give them peace of mind going into this? I would say um, I think we all have that that uncertainty when we're trying new technologies with its clinicians trying to introduce something new to the workflow. Um, just try it. it uh, once you give it a shot, uh, it will you'll be able to see for yourself if is that something you are comfortable with. Is that something that's going to have a good impact on you or not? I would not listen to others as much as having my own experience. I like to go on my own and try things to to see if it works because. We're all different by the end of the day. What works for me could not work for you and vice versa. So I would say try it for yourself and make your own judgment. Uh, That's true. And also remember that there are regulating bodies in place to make sure that by the time it hits the doctor's office, it's been validated. And then at least we have some some peace of mind when it comes to that. Sherry, it's great to see you again. As always, I'll be checking in regularly to keep up on your progress. But congratulations on your amazing new company. And also thanks for sharing your knowledge with us today. Of course, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. Today, we're taking a deep dive into how AI is shaping the future of healthcare with leading researchers in the world of diabetes and cancer. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back. Today, we're taking a deep dive into how AI is shaping the future of healthcare with leading researchers in the world of diabetes and cancer. Let's get back to the interviews. Hi, Dr. Boyar. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And it's, uh, it's Daniel. That's a makes, makes it easy to do. Uh, same here. I'm really glad we, we connected today. We're reaching out to each other from literally about a third of the way across the world. You're based out of Sweden. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I'm an assistant professor at the University of Gothenburg in, in Sweden. Uh, so I started about three years ago from a faculty position and my, my lab mainly works on these complex sugars and um, developing AI methods and um, computational methods to understand them and analyze them. Hmm. And so what did you do your initial research in? Was it a biology stream or were you in the more technical side of things? Yeah, I started out as, a, as an experimentalist in biology, basically. So I, I did my, my doctorate in Switzerland and my postdoctorate in, in Boston. And I've always worked on, on human cells, And uh, but I started out more with genetic engineering approaches and now it's more the, uh, the sugar side of things. 
Well, things are changing a lot in research. Big data is a big thing. The ability to be able to analyze statistics, for example, I'm sure you've used like SPSS and all the statistical tools back in the day, but things are changing rapidly with the advent of AI. How is AI being incorporated into your research right now? Yeah, so we use it a lot. We are both developers and users of AI in our research, especially because our research niche on these complex sugars, there has not been a lot of AI-based work prior to our work um, in that in that field. So we had to develop a lot. And we use it mainly to predict functions of these molecules. We use it to process data in a very efficient manner, to predict structures of these molecules, and really to, to help us wade through this very complex type of data. Mm. I mean, you're you're dealing with cancer, and so maybe you could give us a bit of a biology 101 on how sugars and cancer relate. Yeah, absolutely. So as we know, lots of things change in cancer, and these sugar molecules, what the great thing about them is that they are sort of like a, an indicator of change in general. They're very sensitive to change in, in, in conditions of cells, of tissues, etc. So if you have, for instance, a tumor microenvironment, then that will also affect the sugars on the surface of the tumor, which is both a sort of a diagnostic radar, but it's also a, a means for the tumor to escape, for instance, the immune system by um, recruiting proteins that switch off the immune activity uh, that then bind to sugars that are now on the surface of these uh, tumor cells. Yeah. So when we think about cancer, like I think that one of the confusing things is that people, when they think about cancer, they think of it as being this, uh, as being detrimental, but the cancer cells actually think they're doing the right thing. Is that why they're proliferating and growing within the body and then causing these changes? Yeah. I mean, in, in a way they just want to survive, right? So they want to survive and thrive and thriving for a cell means dividing and just occupying as much space as possible in a sense. And the alterations such as the sugars help them really to do that, to, to survive from you know, being killed by the immune system, for instance. Hmm. And when I think about cancer, there's obviously lots of different types of cancer people can develop. Is this a tool that can be used for a variety of different cancers or is it just specific forms? So, so we, it can be both in a sense. We know already from, from lots of work in blood that there are generic changes to these carbohydrate signatures that happen, for instance, in inflammatory conditions. And that is then it's sort of an unspecific signal, but also it's specific to the to generic signature that occurs in many different disorders. Um, however, we also know that there are changes that are more specific to particular types of disease and particular types of cancer then also. So it depends on which aspect of the structures you look at whether they are specific or whether they are more general markers. And when I look at how people measure different things in the body, there's all sorts of different ways. They can biopsy things. They can take urine samples and blood samples. You guys are using saliva samples right now. Why is that the preferred method for what you're trying to do? Yeah, so you could indeed use any kind of sample to measure carbohydrates because they are present everywhere in our body. Um, there are two reasons for saliva. One is sort of a generic one that is always useful for saliva because it's non-invasive. So that's great, right? It's a sort of a low cost, low patient burden kind of approach. The second one is more sugar specific in the sense that all of our mucosal surfaces, that means our gut, our, our stomach and our mouth are extremely rich in sugars. That makes them so slimy and viscous. So so it's a, really a treasure trove for, for looking at the sugar changes in that context. When I teach endocrinology, sometimes I explain to people that these hormones and different molecules are traveling throughout the entire body and they go through the entire system in a matter of minutes quite often. So you can test something from your mouth and it can give an indication of cancer or something else happening somewhere else in the body. And sometimes that's really hard for us to process just how integrated the entire body is. When we look yeah. at 
some of the challenges you have. When I think about artificial intelligence in particular, it seems like it's been around for a long time. And I know that it has been, but the readily available things that the public is now using have only been around for like just over a year, which seems crazy. Um, what are some of the challenges you have when you're trying to incorporate such a new technology into your research? Yeah, yeah. So definitely, and I think that's part of the reason why this technology has not been used in that field so far, because AI is particularly good in, in, in working with linear information. So text, for instance, you know, you just read it from left to right in, in our part of the world. Um, and that's just a linear operation. The same for, for DNA sequences, for protein sequences, they're just going to one, one, one direction. It's not true for these sugars because they can branch. So suddenly you have a non-linear molecule and that rules out already a lot of the common AI techniques that you can use. So you have to go into a kind of graph approaches to have it more as a, as it's a three-dimensional structure that it is. So we had to, to really develop methods for that to, to deal with that. So that is sort of more of a, on a structural level, but also the data quality that you usually get when you measure sugar molecules is comparatively bad. So we need to deal with a lot of statistical measures to, to normalize the data, to really deal with the data quality and to and get statistically meaningful results out of it. Hmm. Do you find it interesting that as a biologist and you're doing cancer research, that you guys are also developing forms of technology now to be able to hack these different challenges you face? Because that to me seems as though that would typically live with computer programmers or engineers, and all of a sudden now it's being done by biology researchers. Yeah, I think you're right. Traditionally, it's still viewed as sort of separate silos, right? But I think that that's a fascinating part of it that I can, I mean, I, not only can I apply the tools that are right for the job, but I can actually make new tools and then uncover new things that have not been able to, to be measured or analyzed before. On a bigger philosophical level, do you think that there's going to be a lot of advancement in the field of health over the next little while as more and more people start to incorporate this type of technology? I think so. And, and I think it's especially important that actual users are also developers because as if you're a user, then you have a very clear insight into what's needed uh, and then you develop the relevant artistic technology that can actually be applied. I think it's a bit of a danger if someone develops tech and then doesn't interact or, or use the tech, right? Because then you develop something for a market that is not there, et cetera. So that, that is a problem, I think. So that as, I, as I think we become more interdisciplinary in a sense, hopefully we also develop more relevant tech in, in, in the health space. One thing that they do need is the ability to detect cancer early. Obviously, it's something that affects all of us in one way or another. Where do you see the possibility of this going if you guys are able to validate this technology? Yeah, yeah. so if we extrapolate from work in blood that people have done, then we know that for many, many diseases, changes in the sugars precede diagnosis at least a year, sometimes even a decade. So sometimes people still have symptoms, but at least they don't have a diagnosis at that point. So that means that we, that we have strong hopes that we can can get a, an earlier diagnosis via analyzing sugars, even of um, asymptomatic people, uh, as long as we have the baseline, what the healthy sugar repertoire should look like. I think I think that's that's key, um, and that's something that we want to have. That's why also the non-invasive sample is so important, so that we can actually screen people even if they're not coming to the hospital with the dangerous symptoms, etc. Yeah, I did got to think that a mouth swab, if there was an easy test, I think about like the swabs that we were using for COVID and things like this. That sounds like it might be a more cost-effective technique as well for people to be able to do more widespread screening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so there's also something where we need to do some some more tech development because currently a swab would not be sufficient. We would need someone actually spit in a tube just in terms of sample volume. But but uh, but that's something I think that can be optimized uh, and hopefully to the level where where the volume in the swab would be sufficient. 
And so we think about the impacts of research like this because, you know, knowing a bit about how cancer works, we know we have different stages of cancer and we know that early detection is key. What could this possibly do to the mortality and morbidity of cancer if you're able to detect it sooner? Yeah, so I, th I think that, that depends very much on the type of cancer. For some, I think you can you can really help people a lot if you treat them earlier. So their early diagnosis would help a lot. I think even for the cases where you don't get such a huge benefit of early detection, you still could maybe have a more personalized approach to things, such as if you can group patients based on their sugar profile and then treat them accordingly to hopefully get a better response. And because I, th I think we, we know by now that for many drugs, they don't work for everyone to the same degree. Uh, so, so leveraging that could also be powerful, I think. Hmm. And I know that a lot of cancers are also difficult to detect. So it allow physicians and, and medical professionals to be able to start looking for things that may go undetected. My father had pancreatic cancer and it was one of the last places they looked because it was so buried inside the body. So that's a, a real challenge for people. Let's go back to the ease and the cost of it. That's obviously important for it. Do you think that something like this could be incorporated into a regular checkup for people if that is something that's readily available to us? So that, you know, basically we go see our physician, we get our blood pressure tested, they look at our eyes and ears, maybe we spit in a tube or take a swab and we're able to detect things? That would be the hope. So so I would I would say maybe not with the current methods that we at the moment have, but what, so what we are currently trying to do is to find biomarkers that are diagnostic. And then once we have found those, then I think it's more economic to develop tests to measure only those biomarkers that have been proven to, to show diagnostic value. And those tests would, could be incorporated, I think, into standard checkups. Huh. Okay, so I think that sometimes when people think about the scale of something like this, it's really tough to grasp if you aren't in the research world. Maybe we can talk a little bit about what's required in order to develop this type of research and then take it to another level so that it can become part of our general practice for people. Maybe you can explain, how is your research funded? And you're a young professor, um, you're, you're new in your career, but you've been able to secure a pretty significant research project. How are you able to do that? Yeah, so we, I think we are really, I'm really grateful to have long-term funding, which is which is really key for for this type of work. So we, are, so most of our research is funded by by really long-term funding from the Knudsen-Alice Wallingberg Foundation from Sweden and from the Ranko Weiss Fellowship in Switzerland. And then we have lots of other uh, private foundations in Sweden that fund, especially cancer-related research, uh, because. As you as you as you know, biological research in general costs a lot of money. Uh, salaries cost a lot of money. So you know you need people to do this work. So so you, that that requires a lot of funding, which we are very grateful for. And and so how far along are you, and how long do you think the project will extend? Yeah, we work on this in a broad scale, so maybe maybe two years. But on a on a more narrow scale, in this particular project, we only really started last summer to make a concerted effort. Before that, it was more of uh, you know bit here, a bit there, etc. So so that means that I think we've made pretty fast progress also on this, and I'm I'm quite hopeful that we continue to do so. Uh, that being said, I think clinical studies will, will will always take their time. So so I don't think that anything before five years would be realistic to have something uh, validated and uh, ready to go. So let's talk about the clinical trials right now. So after you've tested in a lab setting, you have to start testing it on potentially animals or people. How does that process work and what's the, the horizon for that occurring? I think we are in a good position to be closely associated with the university hospital here in Gothenburg. So we have ready access to patient samples in that sense. So that makes it quite feasible, especially work with saliva samples that, you know, it's non-invasive sample, et cetera. Um, so that's very nice. So I think we, we start out with first generating kind of a, a risk score based on the sugar recipient measure. 
And ideally, there would be um, individual sugar changes that are so diagnostic that you could develop targeted tests for that. Uh, and for that, we have a separate branch in my lab where we work on sugar binding proteins that are specific for particular sugar changes so that we could use those to develop these tests to measure then the, the level of these changes. And that would then be the test that would be clinically validated and hopefully be used with patients. So when I think about like the use of AI, is this research possible because AI has the capacity to be able to look at these complex molecules in three dimension and be able to analyze them in a way that would take too long for a human being to do it? Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a bit uh, a bit uh, dichotomizing to put it into, into yes, no, but it definitely is, is making it extraordinarily more likely that this is not possible with the use of, of AI. I mean, both just sheer scale, but also as, as you mentioned, the, the sheer complexity of, the, of these molecules would make it very difficult, I think, to do this in a reasonable amount of time. Mm. So when I think about the contribution that you're able to make here, if this is able to be commercialized and be put into the medical system, this could have significant widespread outcomes on people all around the world. Human beings would likely probably respond in a similar manner. What's the role of researchers versus physicians when it comes to moving the field of medical care uh, ahead? Yeah. Uh, I think uh, the important thing is, uh, is a continuous dialogue in, in one sense, especially because I think the, the role of the researcher should be to to spearhead completely new approaches in a sense. And then the role of the physician should, should be to make sure that this is a reasonable approach, that this is actually helping patients and, and not just novelty for the sake of novelty. But it also means I think that the early stages as, as they are being done are being done by, by researchers. And then as soon as the technology shows promise in preclinical settings should be then applied on patient samples. Uh, I think this trajectory is also important to not waste quote unquote um, patient material on an untested technology in a sense. Uh, it's, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. All right, so we're starting to wind down here now. I mean, that's it's wildly exciting what you're doing. I think it's fantastic use of, of tech and knowledge and everything combined together, and I think it can make a huge impact. Is there anything you'd like to leave our, our listeners with before we, we close up? Yeah, I want, to, I want to always emphasize the importance of these complex sugar molecules. I think we, we don't do a good enough job as researchers to educate the public on their existence, their relevance, uh, and their potential. Uh, in a sense, I think most of us are aware of, of mRNA now uh, since, since the pandemic. Um, people know about proteins, about, about DNA, but we don't know about these carbohydrates really in, in most in most contexts. Um, so, so that is something that I really encourage people to learn more about because I think it's something that is, is really up and coming. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for joining me today. I was really fascinated to hear about your research. I think it's really exciting stuff. And I also really appreciate you taking the time and your busy schedule to join us. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I want to thank Dr. Washby and Dr. Boyar for joining me today. It's been an enlightening conversation. We've gained valuable insights on how artificial intelligence is revolutionizing the healthcare sector, especially in the fields of diabetes and cancer research. The work of our guests today is just a glimpse into the vast potential that AI holds for transforming healthcare. From enhancing diagnostic accuracy to enabling early detection and personalized treatment plans, AI's integration into healthcare promises a future where medical outcomes are significantly improved and patient care is personalized. Now, for those interested in learning more about how AI may transform the healthcare field and the pioneering work done by these researchers, I encourage you to check out their work. These advancements in AI-driven healthcare are rapidly evolving, and they offer hope and new possibilities for addressing some of the most challenging health issues in our community. So thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Wall. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of The Wall Show on your VOCM.